I don't normally do this, but if God has been good to you this week, can I get an amen? amen. Oh, it's joy to my heart to hear so many say amen. I'm going to read this morning from Colossians chapter 3. I thought I heard a weird sound. I was like, what is that? Okay, Colossians chapter 3. Maybe Jesus is coming back. Amen. Amen, amen. Before I read, I want to point out this passage is dealing specifically with families and the relationships that are within there. And I want to take a moment to do a quick plug, if I may. I am the family ministries pastor here at Paragon Church. My primary responsibility is youth, yes. But more than that, I want you to know that I love you. And I want to see the best for you and your life. And so if you ever find yourself in a place where you're just not sure, give me a call. Send me an email. Text me. I'm more than happy to walk this with you. That is what my heart's desire is for you. Same as Matt, right? You can call Matt too. I know. You go for number one while I go for number two. I get it. But if he's busy, let me know. Because, here's the reality of this. I just got back from Texas from my studies and it was amazing because the thing they talked about was that in the body there are different gifts. Not everybody is equipped the same way. And we need to celebrate that. And so what I would encourage you is where are you serving? Where are you plugged in? Where are you connecting? If you're just coming and sitting in a seat and not relationally connecting to the people next to you, well, I would, I would challenge and say that you're not really a part of the church. Yeah, you may be one with Christ, but this ecclesia, this assembly of believers, you have now disconnected from. Let us encourage each other, edify each other, build each other up, spur each other on towards Christ as Paul does in this passage here, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 3 of Colossians. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, where are my kids at? Obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Do not exasperate or drive your children to wrath so that you will not lose heart or they will not lose heart. Slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will be, you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. Let us pray. Father God, as we continue our time of worship, 
through the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and move on our hearts and draw us closer to you. Illuminate our minds to see and open our hearts to hear what your word has for us today. Let Christ be exalted higher and higher and let us become lower and lower. Mm. Let us surrender and submit to the mercy that you have poured out. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen, guys. Thank you so much again for being here today. I'm going to dismiss our kids. As the lights come up, you're going to see those doors over there. And you're going to head that way. As they're going their way, those of you who are staying, I would love for you to open up to the book of Ephesians. We are now in chapter 6. Chapter 6, the final chapter of Ephesians. And over the summer, we've been looking at really the second half of the book of Ephesians and what we've titled Walk Worthy. The reason why we've called it Walk Worthy is because in the first half of Ephesians, we have realized that we are made worthy in Christ and our response is to walk worthy. We are to walk worthy and Paul challenges us to, in response to what Christ has done for us, to walk in love, to walk in light, to walk in wisdom and to walk in the Spirit. Not just walk in the Spirit, but also be filled by the Spirit. And that filling of the Spirit will lead us to what we've talked about for the last couple of weeks. The relationships that Christians have should be based on Ephesians 5.21. When it says, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. We're only able to do that when we are filled with the Spirit. Because if you're filled with yourself... Submission is not something you want to do. As a matter of fact, submission is a word that we don't really like. It means to yield your authority, to give up your authority. And it's not something that comes naturally to us, yet here we are in the third week of talking about it. Submission. Paul challenges us in this letter, first, wives to submit to their husbands. Then it went to husbands, submit to the Lord and love your wife as Christ loves the church. This week, we're going to look at a spirit-filled submission to Christ of children to their parents. We're entitling it Spirit-Filled Homes. And really the thing is, is as I prepared this week, and mostly yesterday, I came to make a change. I was planning on doing all of one through nine which includes children and their parents and slaves and their masters or employees and their employers with, if you want to make it a more um, culturally uh, fitting for us today. But the problem is, as I looked at verses 1 through 4 and then I looked at verses 5 through 9, I realized I'd be doing a disservice if I put them together because there's so much in each. I didn't want to just cram it all. As a matter of fact, you'll see today just doing children... We're going to probably go a little bit longer than normal. And even in it, we're going to look at that parent relationship with our kids. And we're then going to focus next week on 5 through 9 with a closer look at slavery and how it speaks to us today. And then we're going to wrap up our entire series with 10 through 24 on the last Sunday of August when we'll also take communion. Now, Pastor Bruce read the parallel passage up front of Colossians 3, and we will be referencing that this morning. But today, I want to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. So please follow along as I read. Children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. 
Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so they may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. As we prepare to look at this passage, I actually want to jump ahead a couple of weeks. I want to jump ahead a couple of weeks into September when we're going to start a new series on the book of James. We're going to call it Real Life and Real Faith. James is a very practical book, probably one of my favorite books. And what I want to do as we jump forward, and I'm looking forward to getting into it also. I'm not going to give you too much today. But as we jump forward, there's one passage that continues to stick out in my mind. It's one that as I look at Ephesians, I see the connection of how it takes place and what we've been talking about. It's found in chapter 2. And Paul, or sorry, James has been talking about faith and works. Faith and works. And to, to complete the passage at the end of chapter 2, he writes these words, and it's words you probably know, probably something maybe you've even had discussions with, with, uh, with maybe some of your Latter-day Saints friends or something like that. It's this. Faith without works is dead. And I began to think about that and thinking about how it all comes together without spoiling what we're going to do in the fall. What I want to say is this. If our faith in Jesus is real, if it has done real change in our hearts, if it has done real change in our lives, if it's done real change really in our everything, if we are spirit-filled people living in submission to one another, well, guess what? The people who are going to see it best, the people who are going to know it best, are those that we are in close relationship to. Well, if you go back to the book of Ephesians, who has Paul been telling us about in our relationships to be submissive to? It's those we are in close relationship to. You're going to see it play itself out and play together because these are the ones you can't put a show on for just an hour a week on a Sunday morning. These are the people who are going to see us day in and day out. They're going to see you in your good times and they're also going to see you in your bad times. They're going to see your works. They're not just going to see the Facebook version of you. They're going to see the real version of you. And when they see it, what are they seeing? What are they seeing about your faith and does it match your works or vice versa? Do your works match your faith? And this is the one that Paul's teaching us to relate to. Wives and husbands, children and parents, and employees, employers, or slaves and masters. Now we've covered wives and husbands over the last two weeks. This week is children and parents. Next week, the slaves and masters or employee employers as we see it all play out. So what I want to do is I want to dive in to verses 1 through 4. But even before we get too far, like last week, I want to preface it with this. Last week we said, I know not all of you are husbands, not all of you are wives. Well, this week I know that not all of you are parents. But this is what we need to remember. We are all part of the family of God. And Paul here seems to assume that children are in, t in attendance as he writes this letter, and it's being read to those who aren't parents as well. This instruction that he has given is not just for parents. It is for everyone. And we think about this. If you are single, if you are married with no kids, if you're married with kids, if you're married with kids who have moved out of the house, this is all for you. Because even as Pastor Bruce said up front, we are family. We are all a part of the body. And as a family, even 1 Timothy 5 mentions that, as a family, 
we have to remember that we each have a responsibility to come alongside and and help disciple children. As a matter of fact, when we talk during our children's dedications, we have the church also respond during a child dedication on how we will reach out. So we come alongside parents. We help disciple the parents as they disciple their kids. We encourage the parents as they do it because really... In some way, in some shape or form, the kids of this church are your kids. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, the neighborhood I grew up in, all of my friends' moms had perfect responsibility to spank me when necessary. And I probably got more spankers from them than I did from my own parents, as a matter of fact, because that's when I got into the most troubles, when I was with all my friends. But the same thing was true in the church. That if I were running through the church... There's no problem for a grandmother or a mother of a friend of mine to say, don't be running in the church. And I would, yes, because I didn't want to, you know, face the consequences from somebody else's mom or grandmother. Because, again, those are probably more severe than the ones I would get from my own. We work together in this. We are together. So as we go into this passage, please see it that way. This morning I want to point out really four truths. Four truths about the discipleship of our children. First two are just basic observations from the passage, and the other two are direct commands from our passage. So, let's get into it. First observation I see is found in the fact that Paul and the church value and care for children. Paul and the church value and care for children. The fact that Paul mentions children is such an important thing for us to hold on to. Because this was an important letter to a church But the fact that he mentions them shows the value he places on children. It's actually significant that he also says the word children and not boys. Because in that society, women, and especially girls, were not highly valued. As a matter of fact, they were less on the human scale than most anybody else. But according to Paul and the church, early church, that wasn't the case. The early church had a high opinion of children. They carried on the teachings of Jesus. Jesus himself said, hey, the kids have a high value in my kingdom. So the church also reflected that, but they also reflected the Old Testament. The Old Testament which taught the blessing of children and the need to instruct children. Something, again, that we talk about during our child dedications. Here's why this is important, because it was completely countercultural at that time. The common things to do in the Greco-Roman world would be this. If you didn't want a child, if a child were born and you didn't want it, it was a girl and you wanted a boy, you could throw them on the trash heap and let either somebody come get them, wild dogs come get them, let them starve to death. And if it was somebody, if it was that type of thing, if it just was somebody who came and got them, generally they would be used as slaves, as Gladiators, they'd be grown up to do that, or even they'd be used for prostitution. All of these things were, because nobody cared about that human value of a child. As a matter of fact, orphanages began because Christians couldn't let the kids sit outside and scream. They would go and collect these children and they would grow these institutions up. John Stott actually says this in his commentary of Ephesians. It was a radical change from the callous cruelty which prevailed in the Roman Empire, in which unwanted babies were abandoned, weak and deformed ones were killed, and even healthy children were regarded by many as a partial nuisance because they inhibited sexual promiscuity and they complicated easy divorce. This was a problem with children. 
And I'll say without hesitation, and I'll say without embarrassment, I think it goes uh, without even saying at all, if you ever sit down with my family at the dinner table, that I am very pro-life. I, I am very pro-children from conception on. And people would say that we have evolved from the Greco-Roman culture. But we have not. We have not. Just ask any person that works with the police department. Ask any person that works with the CYFD. Ask emergency room nurses. Ask those who have to focus on crimes against children. You will know that we do not value children more than that. As a matter of fact, if you've seen the movie Sound of Freedom, we'll talk about slavery next week, but this week as we talk about kids, that, that movie, I, I can't say it was a good movie because I didn't like his topic, but it was a well-done movie to open up our eyes to the topic at hand. We live in a culture that talks a lot about tolerance and equity and acceptance, but it fails to truly live those phrases out. It fails to abide by the correct definitions. They've changed the definitions to make it seem like it's more culturally appropriate. But here's what we need to remember. The basis of what Paul is talking about in this overall idea of submission, of being filled with the Spirit, it's this. We're being changed by God. We're being changed by God. We need to be different than the world in our husband-wife relationships. We need to be different than the world in our parent and child relationships. We need to be different than the world in our service relationships. We must be different. But how can we be different? How can we be different? Well, it starts in how we value children. And how do we do that? Well, the church should value children by celebrating the birth of them. We should value children by celebrating the birth of children. We understand that God is the creator of life that the creation of life is his work. And we understand that parents, when we receive a child, we've been given a holy calling to be the primary disciple maker of that child. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it well, he said this, it is from God that parents receive their children and it is to God that they in turn ought to lead them. I truly believe there is no greater joy and no greater responsibility that has been entrusted to raise children in the Lord. It is a huge responsibility. For those of you who are parents, you know how huge it is. For those of you who long to be parents, I'm not trying to scare you away from it. There's a huge responsibility, and we're going to talk about it more in verse 4 as we get to it, but I really don't think many parents understand the importance of raising their children right. And by the word right, I mean biblically. And I, and I truly believe that if you're a parent, you know there are thousands of books on parenting that are out there trying to tell you how to raise your child. And the, the reality is there's secular ones, there are Christian ones, and the authors have different approaches, but as you read them, and if you read any of them, this is my challenge to you. Stack it up next to the Bible. Stack it up next to the Bible because here's what you're going to hear. You're going to hear a lot of psychologists, even the Christian ones, they're going to say things like this. Teach your child to believe in themselves. Teach your child to follow their heart. Teach your child to build themselves up, to build up their self-esteem. Can I just tell you something? None of those phrases are biblical. None of them are. Because we're not called in the Bible to believe in ourselves. We're called to believe in Christ. We are called to follow Him and not our heart. We are called to build up His kingdom and not our own. 
You want to find confidence? Find it in Jesus. Not in yourself. But these are the things that even the Christians are telling us to do. We have to stack it up next to the Bible. By all means, stack up my message next to the Bible. We shouldn't just take what somebody says to heart. We should put it next to the Bible and say, are they right? Or are they leading me astray? Please do that with me. Please do that when Pastor Roos is up here speaking. Anybody who fills this pulpit, anybody who fills any pulpit, do that, please. We need to come alongside and we need to understand that value. And we need to raise them up. The church should also value children by supporting foster care and adoption. Now this might be because I'm kind of bent towards that, but I'm going to say it anyway. The physical act of adoption reflects the spiritual act of adoption as we enjoy being children of the Abba Father. He pursued us when we were abandoned on that trash heap. He pursued us when we were abandoned on that trash heap and He has now made us to sit with Him in the heavens. We were once sons of disobedience, but we are now sons and daughters of His. That is what Ephesians 1-3 through is all about. That's what he's talking about and pointing us towards. We need to make sure that we understand that it is our responsibility to do the same, though, for other kids. We need to welcome the, I'll use this in quotes, the functionally fatherless into our lives and into our homes. A recent report noted that 80% of African-American children in the U.S. are being raised apart from a biological father. 60% of Hispanics and 50% of Caucasians without a biological father in the home. You know what that leads to? The statistics are painful to look at. I'll just say it's all sorts of negative. All sorts of negative from from gangs and drug use and alcohol abuse and premarital uh, birth and uh, you know unwed mothers, all the things to tie into those who didn't raise, weren't raised without a father. It's astronomical, the, the numbers and the statistics. The problem is, is that the church has failed to step in. We need to be the church. We need to be the church because it says in Ephesians 5.1, we're to imitate God as dearly loved children. We're His children. We need to imitate Him in the way that we reach out. Come alongside of those kids and those parents and invest in their lives told you there were two observations. The second one is this. Paul says, set a Christ-centered example for your children. Even though Paul doesn't say it specifically, set an example for your children, verses 1 through 4, the point is implied. And it's based on the previous chapters of Ephesians as well as when he says, hey, train up your children. Can I ask you a question? What are children learning? What are your children learning? How are they learning how to live? Who's teaching them? See, I think children learn best by observation. They are learning basic Christian living by watching who? And what are they learning as they watch? Paul's been addressing all Christians in the church of Ephesus, and many of those, those Christians there, they were parents. And one of the primary places there to live out the instructions that we've seen with the husbands and wives, and to be filled, and to walk in wisdom, and to walk in the light, and to walk in love... They're seeing it take place at the home. And children are observing. They're observing their parents' own relationships to the Lord. They're watching them pray. They're watching them study the Bible. They're watching them worship. And you know what? We already said this. They're the ones who know. They see the real deal. 
They know if their parents are amazed by God's grace, they also know if they're not. They can tell the difference. They can see the hypocrisy. Kids watch how parents value God and how they value the church. They're watching how their parents are speaking truth lovingly. They're watching their parents working honestly, giving generously, encouraging each other properly, putting away bitterness and anger with repentance. And they're also watching their parents forgive one another as a Christian should. Now you might think, well, where did you get that list from? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 mention all those things that Paul has commanded us to do. Here's something we need to fully understand. The first picture of God's that children receive is from their parents. How many people have you talked to who have a poor father in the home that see God as a poor father? How many people look and see God as a loving God who have a loving father? See, children are going to get their sense of authority. They're going to get their sense of love. They're going to get their sense of protection from their parents. And as they see it play out, it's going to influence the rest of the way that they see the world and the rest of the way that they see their heavenly father. That is a heavy burden. I understand. I understand that. And guess what? I'll be the first to admit it. I fail at it. I fail at it. We will fail. But even when we fail to reflect God before our children, guess what we get to do? We get to teach them how to repent and receive grace from God. It's all part of the teaching process. We have a huge influence, and it's by example. What are children seeing? Are they learning to value mission more than money? Are they learning to to see the faithfulness of God over career, success? Are they learning humility and repentance or are they learning hypocrisy? See, they're forming their views of God, but they're also forming their views of marriage that we've talked about based on their parents' marriage. Are we giving them a compelling vision? Remember, you are giving your children a picture of what we talked about last week, that it's not just about wives submitting and and husbands submitting. It's about a picture of the gospel. It's Christ and his church, what picture are they seeing? How are they seeing it demonstrated in front of them, both with Christ and the gospel and with husbands and wives properly loving each other? So I, I wrote this in here, and I, I don't mean anything to, to those who have been divorced, but one of the best things you can do as a parent is to love your spouse and stay together. That, that, that's the truth of the matter. Now, I understand it's not always possible, but that is the basis of it. And finally, here's the thing. Children are, are learning obedience and respect and submission as they watch their parents submit and obey God. Submit to and obey God. We see this in our passage today, the theme of submission and obedience. It really runs from 521 all the way till 69. And, and we see it in different groups. Parents understand that they are under God's authority both in their roles to one another and the roles as parents. And children are watching how we obey God. Have you ever sat back and just watched and said, why is our current generation so out of control? As a matter of fact, one of the commentaries I was reading was talking about how out of control the generation was, and then I realized it was written in 1963. I'm like, oh, things haven't changed. Okay. And, And as I began to look at that, I began to see, you know, we fail. Even as parents. But it doesn't make us bad parents. It just means we need grace. Don't hide your need for grace. It's, again, it's part of your teaching experience. Kids need to know that people will fail in their obedience. But there is one who did not fail. There is one who stood in our place and provides for us forgiveness and empowerment. 
Children need to know the first three chapters of Ephesians. That in Christ we are accepted, that we are forgiven, that we are redeemed, and we are made alive. These are the things that, that we have to see, and these are the observations that Paul's making for each of us to see. Now we move to the commands. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Let's look at verses 1 through 3 again. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it's right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it might go well with you, and that you may have long life in the land. Honor and obey. We're all made by God to glorify God. And you who all includes? Children. This great purpose is partly lived out by kids when they're honoring and they're obeying their parents in the Lord. When parents are instructing children in the way of the Lord, then the child must honor them. So let's ask a few questions. First one is this. How should a child honor their parents? Well, one way is through a proper attitude. Children do not honor their parents when they are pouting or talking back to them. When a child dishonors their parents like this, guess what? They're also dishonoring God himself. Parents need to teach that. Sometimes we fail at that. When God introduces written laws in Exodus, the first horizontal relationship, the first one, the first four are a vertical relationship, the first horizontal relationship one mentioned is commandment five. Honor your father and mother. And if you want to hear something crazy, physically or verbally abusing your parents as a child, and it didn't even matter the age, in the Old Testament was actually a capital offense. And by capital offense, I mean this. You could have been taken to the elders as a child. Again, didn't matter your age. And if they found you guilty of being physically or verbally abusive, you could be stoned to death. Can I ask how many of you would like to go back to Old Testament law? Most of us wouldn't be here. I know I wouldn't. I'm thankful for grace and I'm thankful for mercy. But there's some real craziness to this idea of honoring your parents in this. The thing is, it didn't stop with the Old Testament. Even though Jesus came and fulfilled the law, it appears five other places in the New Testament, which reminds us how important this command really is. Why is it so important? I bet you can probably figure it out, but a child that doesn't grow up with honor and respect of their parents in the home probably won't honor and respect anybody outside of the home either. And just FYI, 1 Timothy 5 says, those of us who have older parents should also honor our parents. We should show proper respect to them and give them special care when and as they get older. Another question along the same lines. Not just how should children honor their parents, but how should children obey their parents? Children obey their parents by hearing and doing what their parents say. It's really not that hard of a, a thing to figure out. Did you hear what Pastor Bruce read in Colossians up front? When he read in verse 20 of chapter 3, he said, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. That is the ramification. That is the result. Pleasing the Lord. If children want to please the Lord, they must obey their parents. Obeying their parents is one of the ways they can obey the Lord. Of course, that leads us to another question. Is there ever a time to disobey your parents? The answer is, is yes. Yes, there is. If a parent ever asks you to do something that is against the law or against the will of God, please disobey. 
Please disobey. That's why Paul says the words in the Lord. The commands of God always come first. But don't make the exception the rule. The truth is children will have a difficult time obeying parents. I was a child once. My guess is that you were as well. And at some point in time, you questioned the sanity of your parents. I think we all go through stages of we idolize our parents to begin with to the point that we humanize them at the end, but in the middle there, we question their, their validity. We try and figure out who they are and what they're doing. But when kids fail, we do need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus died for sinners who disobey God, including kids. Make their disobedient an occasion to teach the gospel. Everyone knows that children do not... Well, I, I say the word everyone... Everyone in the church knows that the children do not have to be taught disobedience. But they do need to be taught the gospel. Remind them of Ephesians 5.18. That in order to do it, we have to be filled with the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, who enables us to obey. So this leads us to another question that fits with a question that kids ask all the time. Why? Why should children obey their parents? Well, Paul gives us some reasons. First one is a spiritual thing to do. As we've already mentioned, it says, in the Lord. That's why any of us do what we do. Because we are in Him and we want to glorify Him. Second is because it is right, Paul says. It's the ethical thing to do. It seems unnecessary to say, but it is worth mentioning that ethics are not common anymore. To have an ethical, moral viewpoint is not common. And one might be even tempted to think, well, should I really require obedience from my child? I mean... Look how cute they are when they do that thing. And you know we've done it before. We can groan because when we see it on the outside, we're like... But as a parent, we say that. We're like, oh, but look, maybe just at that moment they are cute. But requiring obedience is still the right thing to do because it's been said it's easier to train a child than it is to fix an adult. It's easier to train a child than it is to fix an adult. And here's a side note. It's okay for your kid to be bored. A lot of times we take this passage and it says, children, obey your parents for it is right. We say, oh, I think it actually meant to say, parents, obey your children for it is right. Because we don't want them to be bored and we don't want them to scream out loud and we don't want them to be mad at us. Can I tell you how many times my kids have been mad at me? One of the, the best illustrations of this idea of kids being bored happened two years ago with us when we went on our road trip across the country to Maine. And two days in, our car got broken into and all of our electronics got stolen. So my kids had nothing to do but actually stare out the window. (gasps) That's how I grew up. It was the, are we there yet question. Well, when you're going to Maine, that's a long way to go, are we there yet? But my kids handled it like champions. And I began to think, you know what? Maybe we don't need to have them in front of a screen 24-7. Maybe it's okay to have conversations with them. Maybe when you go into a restaurant, you don't have to be like, here, here's my phone so you can shut up while we talk. It doesn't have to happen. It's okay for that because it's okay for them just to obey because it is right and we don't need to try and entertain them because we need to somehow make them feel like we're obeying them. Sorry, I got on a side tangent there. Third, Paul actually gives a motivating promise. God promises both blessing and safekeeping. Blessing, that it may go well with you, and safekeeping, that you may have a long life in the land. See, Paul combines actually Exodus 20.12 and Deuteronomy 5.16. The original promises to Israel that involves this long and good life in the land of Israel. But Paul makes that statement a bit more general for the audience because the audience is mostly Gentiles. 
Of course, this doesn't mean that obedience to one parent means you're never going to get sick or you're, you're never going to possibly have a, a tragic death happen. That, that's not what it's saying. But what it does say is what I say to my kids all the time. It says, either you can learn from the mistakes of others or you can learn from the mistakes of yourself. But the mistakes of others are a whole lot less painful. It's the truth. And parents have walked through that and they're supposed to speak that into their kids. And then it also says, oh, one other truth to hold on to, great spiritual blessings always come from obeying God's word. Children obey and honor your parents in the Lord. Before we move on to verse four, let me say this. I'm gonna go into dad mode for just a moment here. Kids, youth, God wants you to obey your parents because they are wiser and more experienced than you. And because God wants you to be raised in a godly way. I've already said it, but I'll say it again. If children are rebellious in the home, chances are they're going to be rebellious outside the home. If children aren't taught right and wrong inside the home, chances are they're not going to care about laws outside the home. If you are disobedient and disrespectful to your parents, you'll probably be the same way to all authority, including God. That is why it's so important for parents to take up this responsibility and take it up seriously. That's why we're called to do it. Now, we shift to Ephesians 6, 4, where it starts off with the word fathers. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And I want you to see throughout these four verses how much the word parents is focused on here. Obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. And then fathers bring them up. The actual word here could have been translated parents as well, but I think Paul wants to make sure that we are seeing that he's kind of directing it towards dads. He's directing it towards dads and he, and he wants to put that attention there because the truth is it's certainly best for both parents to be present in the lives of their kids. It is not the job of a daycare. It is not the job of nannies. It's not the job of an institution. It's not even the job of grandparents to raise their kids. It is the parent's job. Big homes, nice cars, long vacations are not worth neglecting your kids. As a matter of fact, I was reading a, an interview uh, of a uh, scholar who had lots of books published and, and was on all the speaking circuits and all of those kind of things like that. And he sat down with an interview and somebody said, man, what did you have to do to, to be so famous and, and have all of the engagements and all of the speaking opportunities and things like that? He goes, I had to sacrifice my son. And the interviewer went like, wait, what did you just say? Because you heard me. I had to sacrifice my son. He goes, in all the things that I did, I neglected my role as a father. And in neglecting the role of my father, my son is now homeless and jobless and addicted to drugs and he will not talk to me. He goes, I would give up everything that I have to have that relationship back with my son. And when I read that, it, it hit me. Because the truth of the matter is, being a pastor, I hear stories all the time, even great pastors of the past like Jonathan Edwards and people like that and how they treated their children. And I hear positive stories and I hear negative stories. And the negative stories always go like this. They sacrificed their family on the altar of ministry. And the other positive stories was always my first ministry and my most important ministry is in my home. Because everyone in the church can leave, but the people in your family won't. And that's where you have to be at. 
But every time I see it, I think, okay, that's for pastors. But you can put any profession, anything on that altar. What are you sacrificing your kids for? What are you sacrificing the relationship for? What thing matters the most? Fathers, mothers. As we look at that, the deal is, parenthood requires a change of our lifestyles. Last week I said marriage is a call to serve and to die. Same here. I think that's the reason why abortion is such a hot topic issue. I know people aren't supposed to say that word in church, but I'll say it. I think abortion and the reason for it is because kids interfere with the lifestyle that you want. So why should I have one? I want to be promiscuous. Well, guess what? The result of that promiscuity is a child. They don't say it's a child. They say it's a lump of cells because it's easier to discard on the trash heap when it's not an actual child. That hurts. And and I, I truly believe when we are saying, hey, don't interfere with my life, you're saying, I'm being selfish. We gotta get that selfishness out. That is where the submission to the Lord comes from. Are we aware of our time and attention with our children? Are we aware of it? Are we giving them up because we want something so badly. I, I love Vody Bauckham, probably one of my favorite pastors to listen to. He says this in his book on family-driven faith. By the way, the subtitle is Doing What It Takes to Raise Sons and Daughters Who Walk with God. He said, We cannot continue to send our children to Caesar for their education and be surprised when they come home as Romans. Yeah, when I saw that, I'm like, yeah, you're right. What am I giving up so they don't have to go to Caesar? Or what am I holding on to so they do have to go? Sometimes when it takes dying to self and serving our kids in mutual submission for the glory of God. Then, Paul drops two challenges. To parents in general, but to dads specifically. First he says, don't provoke them to anger. Did you know in the ancient world the fathers had absolute control and they could be very harsh. Reports show that fathers could just up and sell their kids. I told you to shut up and stop talking back to me. That's it. They could also kill them without being punished. They could throw them on the trash heap. As a matter of fact, if you look throughout reports of Roman leaders and on all the big wigs of different things, they're actually quoted as saying things along the lines of, hey, when you give birth, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it out. They wrote these things down. Obviously, they didn't care. And they, they would put this kind of stuff out there. A mother can provoke their child to anger as well, but given the dominant nature and the role of the father, Paul, Paul points to them and says, hey, be fair. Be loving. Be consistent in your attitude towards your child. And in case you're wondering, what can I do to anger my child? I think you know, but I'll go ahead and read a couple. Failing to take into account the fact they are kids. Comparing them to others, disciplining them inconsistently, failing to express approval even at the small accomplishments, failing to express our love for them, disciplining them for reasons other than willful disobedience or defiance, pressuring them to pursue our goals and not their own, withdrawing love for them, or even, this is the toughest one, overprotecting them. What is the result of the anger? Or what is the result of those actions? It's anger, or as Paul wrote in Colossians, discouragement 
Discouragement. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't become discouraged. What's your goal, Mom? What's your goal, Dad? Is it encouragement or discouragement? Second thing he says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul goes from a negative command to a positive command. And notice there's three actions which parents are called to do. Bring up, discipline, instruct. The word here, bring them up. It's the same one that he used with husbands and wives to nurture and care for in Ephesians 5.29. He says we need to nurture and care or bring up our kids. Next, fathers are to train or discipline or instruct their children. That instruction carries the idea of teaching, counseling, admonition, warning, and sometimes verbal instruction. Discipline also involves training, but it involves punishment. The word here in, is the same one that's used in Hebrews chapter 12 to refer to our Heavenly Father's discipline of us. And it actually says it's for our benefit. If we take into account what Paul has written about anger in Ephesians chapter 4, such discipline has to be under control. The type of instruction and discipline we're to give is supposed to be of the Lord. These are all things we need to put together to teach Christian instruction and discipline in a way that honors God. And to expand some on that instruction part, now you can see why I didn't do uh, slaves, by the way, as I continue to keep going. Earlier in Ephesians 4.21, it says, the truth is in Jesus. Give your children Christ-centered instruction. As you walk with them, as you drive them places, as you play with them, and as you have meals with them, can I challenge you? Talk about Jesus. Talk about his incarnation. Talk about his death. Talk about his resurrection. And talk about his lordship in our lives. Danny Aiken, who is the president of the Southeastern Seminary, uh, Southern Baptist Seminary, challenges parents to this way. He says it really simply. Have fun and talk about Jesus a lot. Without a vision, the people perish. Without a goal, we wander. What's your goal for parenting? I don't care if you, you have a child who has just recently been born, the harps, they had their, their baby last Sunday. We celebrate that. Look forward to, to getting to meet little Eleanor. I, I know the, the Cummings just had their, their child. They could be from starting from there. But I don't, if you have an 18, 20, 22-year-old like I do, what is the goal for your parenting? Our goal is to lead our children to the truth that is in Jesus, ultimately so they can submit to the Lord because He is their highest good. That is the goal in parenting, to speak to the hearts of the children and teach them about Christ. Scripture tells us behavior flows from, the chart, uh, from our hearts, so therefore we need to teach them values and beliefs and feelings and motives. We need to talk about sin and repentance and grace and the cross. We need to talk about how we are a new creation because of Christ Jesus. Talk about the end that they are created for, and that is to glorify God. We need to have dialogue too, not just monologue. My kids get monologues a lot. And I, that's an area where I really fail because you've got to have those dialogues. You've got to ask them questions. Know what they believe. Know what they doubt. Know their fears. Fill their hearts affectionately with lots of encouragement. Celebrate their small successes. Celebrate their victories. Warn about the dangers of pride. Warn about the dangers of laziness that we'll talk more about next week. And pray with them regularly. Make sure that they don't just understand Bible stories. And Dale, my little guy, man, he is clicking on all cylinders with Bible stories. We watch all the different ones from uh, Superbook or different things on, on YouTube that have all the Bible stories. But we need to make sure that it's not just Bible stories, that it all is about his story. That Jesus 
is woven throughout all of it. It all points to Him. The Old Testament points to Him. The Gospels are about Him. The New Testament points back. The rest of the Gospels point back at Him. We, we have to have that in our mind. And finally, in our communication, and finally, in our education, in our parenting, my guess is you're going to feel insufficient. And my guess is, is you're right. You are insufficient. I am insufficient, but parenting makes us desperate for God's help. Some days I think the success of parenting equals keeping my children out of prison. Other days I feel like it's keeping me out of prison. That is success in a nutshell. But the truth is, we can find comfort in Titus 2, where Paul says, Grace of God instructs us for godliness. While parents have the responsibility to train their children, God gives us grace working in each of our lives. And he shows some of that grace through the church. Look to God for grace and strength. Psalm 127 reminds us of our desperate need. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the ones he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the sons born of one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. Again, look to God for grace and strength. I heard someone say this once, and I'll wrap up with this. The obvious difference between Paul and us is that Paul bragged about his weaknesses. We try and hide them. Don't hide your weakness. Admit them. Go to God for help. He and his strength will be sufficient. Weak parents have a mighty Savior, and at the end of our goal of our weak parenting is ultimately to glorify that Savior. Let's do that today. Let's pray. Father, thanks again for today. And thanks for the way you continue to speak to us and challenge us and in the ways that we fail. Thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy that continue to pour out on us when we fail. Thank you for celebrating the victories with us when we don't. Thanks for being there with us at all times and all ways. God, I pray for our kids and the generation that they're being raised up in and all the things the world is throwing at them. I pray that they hear the voice first of all, of you, but second of all, of Christian parents who will speak the truth into them and raise them right, raise them biblically. But I also pray for those parents and the, the responsibility that is on their shoulders. I pray for the church as they come alongside of those parents and the responsibilities that's on their shoulders. God, you have given us the ability and the power through your Holy Spirit to overcome May we tap into that and not try and do it on our own, but submit to you and to submit your ways and walk in them to glorify you. And that, God, we can look and see that this entire generation can be changed. We pray it all in your name, Lord. Amen. Christy actually sent me a text this morning. She's home with all of my sick kids today. But she sent me this, and it was a quote that came from a passage because I practiced my message on her on Saturday night and she's like are you sure you used to say that but this is what she said one generation full of deeply loving parents would change the brain of the next generation and with that the world there's been a study on the love that is given to children and how it affects their brains let's make sure that we're affecting them properly